This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We got to the debut after the fact. So really, it was like a second record experience. Yeah. And I would say that the biggest thing for me, again, we were in Concord, New Hampshire, which is like the Arkansas of the North. It's it's this middle American, even though it's New England, it's more middle American somehow. And it was the sense of place. Like on that second record, you're, it's been talked about by many people for a long time, but that Jersey Shore context, I felt like the cinematic power of his songwriting was taking me to a place that I'd never experienced, I'd never seen, but somehow through the romanticism of his writing, I knew I belonged there. everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Set Lessing Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. Today, we are talking Nebraska. We are talking John Hyatt. We are talking the Beach Boys. But mostly, we are discussing Deliver Me From Nowhere, The Making of Bruce Springsteen, Nebraska with Warren Zanes. I'm holding the book here. I finished it. Warren I imagine you never get tired of hearing this was an amazing book. Oh, I don't. Thank you. I don't. <laughs> yeah. It's a very solitary thing. Like I, I was just talking to somebody like you're mostly alone. And then when the book comes, you're so far from alone that if you were to grab it, it's just do, 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 so no, you don't tire of hearing that because you're almost retroactively populating that, that solitary period with the voices yeah. of your readers. So thank you. Yeah. So Warren is someone that has a, I guess, the a wide variety, truly the phrase renaissance man, musician, writer, you're a professor. You dabble a little bit of everything, don't you, Warren? Yeah, it's funny because up to a point in my life, you had advisors from the academic side or advisors from the music side saying, you really need to choose. 
what are you need to choose. And then at a certain point, you cross a line where the diversity of what you do becomes your identifying feature. And so I'm just glad that good fortune sustained me long enough that I got to that point where I could do it all. Because it's still, it's so much, it's so important to me to still be writing songs and recording them. It's so important to me to be teaching and be in the classroom. And it's obviously important to write the books. And I, a lot of good fortune that music is the connective tissue between all these practices. So I'm going to take a leap of faith. I'm going to, and I'll give you a little background. My name is Jesse Jackson. So I get a lot of Reverend Jackson jokes put my way. And I, I, I never mind them. The only ones I get a little tired of is when they act like they're the first person that's ever thought of making that joke. Wow, you don't look like you do on TV. So <laughs> I am taking a chance. You have not gotten this joke too much, but I'm under pressure of what is going to be in my official first question because I don't want to hear what's that. What else you got? <laughs> I have heard that. Yes. It's funny because people who conduct interviews like you, yeah. they're really, they really see that moment in the book. And yes. so several have raised it because this, this is our vocation. I do right. a ton of interviews, mostly from, from your side. Right. And like, what do you do with a question like that? An answer to a question like that. We wake up at 3 a.m. with what else you got? <laughs> I am so glad you smiled because I'm serious. I'm reading and I'm seeing this and I immediately grab my phone and hit email and speech to text add to your questions the joke what else you got and then i got to thinking he may get that all the time and he may roll his eye so thank you for being kind and going <laughs> i always like to start at the beginning so talk about obviously you were a musician very young but let's go back even further growing up what kind of music was your family listening to what was your parents yeah. listening to what did you hear as a kid yeah, I'll tell you this, that is the right question, because as a professor, I see there are the students who were lucky enough to come out of the womb into a good parental record collection, and there are those who weren't so lucky. And I'm on the lucky side. My mother had, she had Pete Seeger and Josh White and Lead Belly, but she also had the Beatles and Dylan and the band and Van Morrison. And then we were living on one floor of a rented home in Concord, New Hampshire. And my uncle played oldies radio. So that was Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Elvis and Buddy Holly. And we're kind of, it's just, you couldn't really create a better situation. And then when we found Bruce Springsteen, and Tom Petty. And it was funny. There was a period there where there was a category crisis. So people were putting Tom Petty in with punk rock. Bruce Springsteen was a singer-songwriter. Elvis Costello was punk rock. And really, you're, the stuff that attracted us, guys who wrote great songs, who had bands backing them. 
It was like, so Van Morrison was a really important model for that generation, I would say. It wasn't, they weren't playing Fire and Rain. They were playing Gloria because Van Morrison comes out of them. He was the perfect model. But those are the guys who had a little bit of everything we found in our mother's record collection and in the oldies that my uncle was playing. Suddenly it was like, whoa, this is for us. Yeah, that peanut butter and chocolate moment, like in the old commercials where you put it together. Totally. So, yeah, I had talked to Warren beforehand that we hit record that I will probably go back and forth between talking about his career and off as a writer and a musician, but also as a fan. So I asked this question when I have someone, can you remember when you first discovered Bruce and what about his music spoke to you, if you can articulate it? And often people can't. They can just say it spoke to me and they can't put their words on it. So how about you? We got to the debut after the fact. So really it was like a second record experience. Yeah. And I would say that the biggest thing for me, again, we were in Concord, New Hampshire, which is like the Arkansas of the North. It's, it's this middle American, even though it's New England, it's more middle American somehow. And it was the sense of place. Like on that second record, you're, it's been talked about by many people for a long time, but that Jersey Shore context, I felt like the cinematic power of his songwriting was taking me to a place that I'd never experienced, I'd never seen, but somehow through the romanticism of his writing, I knew I belonged there. Like Sandy was a song that I listened. That was the song that was like my gateway. And there was so much about the passage into adulthood, the sloppiness of it, the burning desire of it, the failed connection with romantic partners, but all of it situated in place. So if I were to say one thing, I'm like, I found a songwriter who took me to a place and I could really see it. I could really see it. And there are plenty of songs that don't do that. So I knew I was with a writer that I wanted to stay with. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds 
it's in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. I remember sometime... I was reading a Brian Wilson biography, and my first musical obsession was Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys. In 1977, I had just graduated high school. I picked up Endless Summer on an eight-track, and I had never heard anything like it, Warren. I was a child of AM radio, right? And don't get me wrong, 70s AM radio was a lot of fun. I heard a lot of things, but I'd never heard of that. And some critics said there is no, there is a reason why manufacturers and companies are using Beach Boy songs to sell products because Brian was selling the Southern California myth when he was his music. I, do you think that's the same thing of that place? I think it's a great parallel. I think they're a fantastic example. But as you were saying that, I'm seeing the cover of Endless Summer and I'm thinking, I wish somebody would do a book about there, there are certain reissues that had this impact because the generation that wasn't there first time around got them. And they're fairly rare. There are tons of reissues out there, obviously, but there are some that just had this impact as if they were kind of a regular release. An Endless Summer, that gatefold. We cleaned a lot of pot on that record. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I had never heard anything like it. Like I said, it, I bought it as an eight track and it took me down that road that I continue to this day. I was lucky enough to have David Leaf on the show and we, yeah. we ended up doing two episodes. We did one talking about his Bruce Springsteen fandom and then one just as him as his revelation with Brian. But l let me say this, and I think you brought up a great parallel, and I think it's easy to go, oh, sense of place. Every song has that. And it's like, we're talking about masters of place. And I think there's, I, I hope that my neighbor's construction is making no, noise. No, I can't hear anything. So okay. I, I can hear you, um, but that's it. I think we need to factor in that Obviously, Brian Wilson wasn't writing. He had a lot of co-writers. That's one, one difference. Yeah. Springsteen was the sole engine on this songwriting. But 
these writers both belonged to the movie theater generation. You went to the movies regularly and you walked into this room, the lights came down and then you went somewhere else. And I just, I think too little has been said about how movie theaters affected writers like Brian Wilson, like Bruce Springsteen, like Tom Waits. They had this ambition to take you into another world in such a way that you could see it. You know, that's why I emphasize place. But I think movie theaters and what they did to those young imaginations can't really be overstated. I agree. Recently, I think it was the Times had you as a guest opinion piece, and you talked about Wild Honey and how yeah. your son said, huh, Dad, this doesn't sound like, are we sure this is the same band? And I, and I made a note, okay, and listeners, I promise we're going to get to the book, but I loved your story about that of trying to sound maybe not perfect. And in my other podcast, I was telling you about, we're going through every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order and the way he changes his voice at times. And we can say, sing for Bruce, Bruce will change his voice to sing a high pitch or a low pitch or thing. So talk to me a little bit about, and maybe I'll send the link to them, but talk a little bit about your thoughts on you when you wrote that piece. Yeah, and so your listeners know I start with the Beach Boys' Wild Honey, but the point is to get to Nebraska. Yeah. And so this is, a, you can find this online. They gave it different titles, but if you go to New York Times, guest essay, Warren Zanes, you'll probably find it. And then listen to Wild Honey, and it's Carl Wilson's lead vocal. And I fell in love with that vocal performance because of its flaws because there's something about someone reaching straining for a note that has this emotional resonance now the in the beach boys the fact that they left it on a recording is just a demonstration of how sophisticated they were in thinking about vocals they knew that there's an emotional spectrum to the voice. And just like you say, singers don't just open their mouth and go. They make decisions about how they're going to go. Am I going to do this in a breathy way? Am I going to push this vocal out? Am I going to get really close to the mic and actually quiet it down and create an effective intimacy? Now, sometimes we forget the degree to which singers are musicians. They are making music, and making music involves choices. But the Beach Boys made a choice to leave things imperfect because it was serving the song. And when Bruce made Nebraska, he kept trying to re-record those things. And he's like, the first version, which is unfinished and imperfect, serves those songs that he made a decision to release it to me is just the whole reason i wrote that book it's one of the greatest moments in the history of popular music when an artist at that level said 
I'm releasing the raw stuff because it serves the songs. And what record label would want to hear that? What manager would want to hear that? What band would want to hear? No one. And he did it and he was right. And one of the, th I had a guy named Ron Martz who has written hundreds of different stories. And we were during the pandemic and we were talking about Bruce's From My Home to Yours segments he was doing on E Street Radio where he played DJ and told different stories and did different songs. And Ron said, we know he's a master storyteller. Why are we surprised that he can tell a story this way? I want to, yeah. we're going to get to Nebraska, but I did want to mention something. My wife was, has never been a big Bruce fan. And she would always say he, he mumbles, he garbles. I don't understand what he's saying. And we were going to go to a show in 2012. It was going to be her second show. And I said, okay, I want you to do something for me. I said, I want you to don't try to understand what he's saying. Think of this as an, as a classical music piece, like Peter and the Wolf. Just think of his voice as another instrument and listen to the emotion of the song. And she goes, okay. And she came back and said, okay, I get it. She goes, I still want to pull up the songs on the phone and read the lyrics with him, but listening to it that way works for me. Yeah. That's not really a question, but what are your thoughts on that? I'm glad that you could stay married. <laughs> yes. Uh, we have a mixed marriage. Uh, she runs marathons. She does half Ironman. Kate Bush is her favorite artist, which I was so happy to see Kate make the a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And she puts up with my obsession with the John Hyatt and Star Trek and comic books. So yeah, we've figured out a way to make it work, but yes. Yeah, but I hear what you're saying about giving her a way. There are times where Springsteen's diction and clarity are, you can't miss what he's saying. And then other other times where it drifts down into the mix that I can't even remember if it was in the book, but that when they're, I think it is when they're mixing the river and Jimmy Iveen and Tom Petty come by and Iveen said, so when are you going to record the vocals? <laughs> and it was his way of saying, you can't bury that. Yeah. But this is why when the artist is involved in their own mixes, They'll probably get the vocal wrong. It's you're so inside of it at that point. And there's so much exposure in emotional songwriting that the artist will often pull their lead vocal down. And so they need sounding boards. And Petty elaborated after Jimmy made his comment, Petty elaborated and just said, I really want to hear what you're saying. And there's this balance. It is rock and roll. And there are some times where the song benefits from the listener having to reach for it. Like, to f what does he say? What? It's a kind of engagement. So it's not like absolute clarity is what you should strive for, bottom line. No, it's, again, it's a sophisticated process of decision-making. Sometimes you want that slur. Sometimes you want that mumble. And that's right when 
the listener like leans toward it a little bit. And I was talking to the artist Richard Prince about the photographer Deanne Arbus. And he was saying that her original prints, before she died and it was run by the estate, the original prints were very small. And it caused viewers to have to lean in to see these characters in her photographs. And then after she died, they blew them up and did it on a much larger scale. And part of me felt like that's a loss. There's something great when the viewer or the listener has to lean in and work a little together. I, you, get, you got your wife away to listen. I hope that the next stage in her Bruce experience was to do that, to lean in and say, what is happening here? Because I know there's turmoil. I want right. to hear if it resolves. I want to hear what happens. I'm invested. Yes, it has been. And she went to two shows on this last tour, Love Them Both, and talking about lyrics. It's funny, for Father's Day a couple of years ago, they they pulled up Bruce on Broadway, and we are going to watch it. And my son had never seen it. My wife had gotten through just the part where Right when Bruce says, okay, I'm going to get you off Suicide Watch, right before that, she had said, this is too depressing. I can't watch this. So we watched it, and so Growing Up finishes, right? It begins. And my wife I don't understand what this song is about. This makes no sense. I don't understand the lyrics at all. And my son, who was about 29 at the time, said, oh, my God, how have I never heard this song before? This is amazing. I love this, and I just love the difference of this, how it speaks to someone else. And, yeah, she has become a fan, and she now definitely appreciates and understands a lot of the songs. So that's – we've grown together. All right, so let's yeah. talk well, Nebraska. Go ahead, please. No, I was just going to say I, this is a place I go to at the end of the book is just talking about – these three to five minute things, pop songs, they have such a density that we can, books we read generally once, maybe if we really love it, we'll read it twice. Movies, if we really love it, we might get up to five times. Songs, thousands, thousands. Like the way we circle around these things and the different experiences we have of them based in part on where we're at in that moment. Like, of course your wife had that experience and he had that other experience. That relates to me to the density of the form and the greatest practitioners, Springsteen being one, give us these things that are particularly dense. Years later, we're sitting and listening to it and we have an epiphany. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of joy in that. It's another way to see where we've come in life. When we hear it differently, it means we're a different person. And music is, that's one of the things music does is to tell us how far we've come. I totally agree. So I was just on another podcast and they, they are once a year in chronological order, they're doing a Springsteen album and they do, it's a, rock review and so they asked me to be on to talk about nebraska just two weeks ago and we all had read your book and we all had used it as a reference 
but one of the guests was saying I was late to Springsteen and I was warned don't listen to Nebraska till you've spent <laughs> some time and I told this story that after I discovered Endless Summer I bought every Beach Boy eight track album I could find and I remember it was a double set Pet Sounds and Carl and the Passions and I put it on and I didn't know what I was listening to. It didn't sound like a Beach Boy record. And I candidly didn't care for it. Right? I was like, I did no, I no. Okay, let me put back in in the summer. And then <laughs> to this day, if someone asks me what's your favorite album, I immediately pet sounds. I as much as I love Bruce Springsteen. Pet Sounds is something, as you've talked about, thousands of times. And every time I hear it, I hear something new. Can I please. say one thing? And I don't mean to get you off topic. But no, please. I, you know, I, I, there's something similar with like the Kinks and the Beach Boys. In, the, in their early work, they didn't get to making complete albums where every song counts for a little bit. Exactly. So, I think it's summer days and summer nights that has unbugged at my old man. On it. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like there it's, it's filler. Yeah. In the kinks early records there, the, you knew what the singles were. And then there were, there were a lot of Chuck Berry covers and then they get to the point where you're getting it happens before village green, but village green preservation, you're getting complete albums. The Beatles started with complete albums and Springsteen's generation, it was always going to be complete albums. And by yes. that, I just mean every song counts. Yes. The album tracks count as much as the singles because they're expecting you to listen to it as a totality. But by the time the Beach Boys get to Pet Sounds, they're totally making the complete album and it's like they're masters exactly it is wonderful i once i got to nebraska and ryan koppelman talked about this a little bit with you but western stars to of his ghost of tom joe devils and dust nebraska but i think western stars is the closest to nebraska to me, because I feel they're both collections of short stories. And am I overthinking it? No, no, I don't think so. My, my, like, yes, collections of short stories, but I feel like the thing that really binds them is there's some something about the solitary nature of the speaking voice. I feel like these are voices that speak from isolation. He, Springsteen talked a lot about isolation relations in Nebraska. It's a different kind of isolation on Western stars, but I heard the solitary. I was more able to view it romantically with Western stars, but I got excited by that record. Like I, I got this doesn't usually happen, but I, but in this case, for because of another project, I got it early, and I was like, "Wow!" My first, I said it on Brian's show. Like, I went, 
whoa, tunnel of love. This is like yes. an extension of that. And yeah. then I got to, oh, this is in the Nebraska family. But obviously the production, however different from Tunnel of Love, brought me there. This is, th these are produced tracks. Whereas Nebraska, it's the only one that's got that. He made an official release not knowing he was making an official release. And it's just the way it puts you in the room with them is stunning. You make a joke, or and it's not really a joke, that there was lint on the cassette. <laughs> they didn't even have. I, and once again, you put art out, and everyone has to interpret it their own way. But I read this almost as a mystery novel. Why would someone who is way, riding a wave of success that all of a sudden, as Bruce makes jokes, we had a single which brought women to our concerts. <laughs> we had this joy, this going. And why would someone take a step sideways, not backwards, sideways, to do this, and it's almost like I've got to take a break before I go through the next phase of this success marathon. So I don't know I mean, if that's that, how you meant it. That That is, a I feel like, a truth that was arrived at retroactively. Like he says, like this was a mistake beginning to end. It was an accident, but it served that function. There was some kind of, in addition to going into a past that he needed to go into to evolve as a man, he did this kind of artistic cleansing. That's why the Elvis part of the book is super important because it yes. helps explain, like, what he needed to do to be ready to be the Bruce Springsteen of born in the USA. And he's got, so he's got that meditation period out in Los Angeles. Was all of this conscious? I would say absolutely not. Did it serve that function? I would argue absolutely. And that's, he's got some native genius for timing, knowing what, he needed and it sounds like a very hard period in his life but even as you were describing it like i can't help it. it's super emotional to think about a person hitting one of these impasses in life let's call it a kind of bottom and responding to it and growing from it it's the only thing i wish for him is that he wasn't so alone in it. But I've said to others, I get chills thinking about walking into the Nebraska room with him. Oh, I imagine. It's just, it's that powerful feeling of, look, this guy was in a rough spot in life and he wrote songs as he went through it. A lot of people can't do that. They stop production stops and they go through it and it starts again when they're done. So that set him apart. But, but it was walking in the room. It was like, he did something so solitary in Nebraska 
And then there I am with a guy who, if you were to sit him down and say, what are the most important things in your life? He's going to say his wife and kids. I feel 100% sure. Yeah. That guy hadn't emerged yet in 1982. And no. going back to the room with him, it's, that's the, what was the power was like, this guy found his way. Like he found his way. That's why Nebraska is a story of hope to me. It's a story about hopeless songs. And it's a story of hope. And you can be both things simultaneously. But I'm still like, we were talking earlier. Is there a point at which you can stop talking about Nebraska? And I would say no. You know, that, and that, like when I brought the Odyssey into my interview with him, there's another collection of stories that the conversation's never going to end around that stuff. There are some of these cultural artifacts that are so dense that we can keep circling around them and it doesn't have to end unless we have to go to sleep or go crazy or die. Last year, I had a, a professor of classical literature join me and I will send you the link. He compared Homer's Odyssey, Iliad, to Springsteen on Broadway. Huh. And he did the wow. connections because of the journey about the fatherhood. And so when I read that, I went, yes, there is that connection of, and I also reading this book, it is, it, it is easy to picture, and I will stand by it, that Colonel Tom Parker was the quote-unquote villain in Elvis's career did a lot of great things. I felt a gratitude that as a Springsteen fan that John Landau, somehow they found each other. And are they perfect? No, but it seems like he has been equal mentor, manager, and friend on his creative journey. And it appears, and just from the outside, that he is serving Bruce's interest and in what Bruce wants to sing. And I may be over-romanticizing it. What are your thoughts? I don't think you're over-romanticizing it. I think that is a big part of the book, is the story of, you know, I talk about it in relation to timing with John. But when I'm talking about it in relation to timing, I'm talking about it in relation to not pushing Bruce to go to Born in the USA, to let him meander when he needed to meander. But there's also a sense of timing that I don't talk about, which is like when, I think I drift around it, but when to be a friend, when to be a manager, when to be the person who says, hey, maybe you should check this out. I think John Landau's got some sensitivity that just fits perfectly with this artist. And my, and I don't know, this is pure speculation, but I sense of Bruce Springsteen that you don't want to crowd him. You don't want to crowd yeah. him. You want to see his process be his process. And there are a lot of managers who are 
it's a there's a balance of marketplace and sensitivity to the artists and the creative process and you can't leave either place but a lot of managers fall too far on one side or the other you can't ignore the marketplace and you can't ignore the creative life and how to best foster it and i think john landau's like what if you're a manager or you're a label executive there are a lot of people who are going to take cheap shots at easy targets it happens all the time they're the bad guys. And that's the old art commerce dichotomy. I wanted in this book to show like a more complicated relationship. And Bruce, Bruce also, he gave the go ahead for that in his own memoir, yeah. the, where he situates John Landau. And so I got to, I feel like I got to, I have permission to go deeper on that and getting to talk to both men certainly I couldn't have done it without them. And I also love the fact that often it's the suits, man, the suits just aren't. And you gave equal credit to his record company is going. And I think once again, I'm reading into this selfishly going, okay, you know what? Uh, you often hear artists, movie actors do one for them one for you, one for them, one for you, right? I do a little indie film, then I'm going to do a summer blockbuster. I'm going to do an indie film. And you get the feeling like, okay, let's, I think, let's go long on this guy and let's do this. And it is, what I think is wonderful is everyone taking this, ultimately, long-term, Nebraska has been, very financially successful and just enormously artistically successful. Yeah. It was the right call if you're working for, as you say, the long game. Yeah. And that's that the long game is for me. I just can't, I don't want to put the time into a book that it takes if it's not a long game artist. Yeah. They're just, they're the ones who ask, have to ask the greatest number of questions of themselves that ultimately interest me as a writer. And like, I remember talking to Elliot Roberts, who's, who passed a few years back, but he managed Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Dylan for a little bit and co-managed Tom Petty for a while. But he had a sit down with Petty saying, look, if you keep trying to escalate this thing upward, one project builds on the next, builds on the next, you're going to blow up, brother. Like, you need a more sophisticated kind of pacing. And I actually say this to my sons because it applies to everything. It's what is the cornerstone to all of life? It's the in-breath and the out-breath. It's expansion and contraction. And the long-range, long-career artists start to do that. And you can actually then look back at their output and see them breathing. And people could look at Bruce and say, wow, he made a mistake when he put out those two records at once and put the and let the E Street band go. And but from our vantage point now, we can look back and go. He was breathing. We're seeing him in stadiums today 
because he took a big breath right there. Was it conscious? Like, no, but he was doing it. And it's, it's, it's funny. You'll see fans question their artists. You'll see them go, oh, that was a misstep. And it's, I just prefer to go, is it an in-breath or an out-breath? And Nebraska and born in the USA, they're just this perfect example of an in-breath and an out-breath. So currently, Warren, there is a small but loud percentage of fans who are complaining that Bruce is doing a static set list right now, that he is, he's lost his spontaneity. He's become an old act there. I, I bought eight tickets expecting to see different shows. And now that I'm screwed because I'm seeing the same show, I saw three shows. I saw three of the shows in Texas. I got COVID. So I missed Tulsa. I have a ticket for Columbus coming up. I have enjoyed every show. I have been vocal. Look, I've watched Casablanca untold times, and I'm never disappointed that it doesn't change. <laughs> I've heard pet sounds thousands of times, and I'm never mad that it's changed. So I'm okay what he's doing. I wonder 10, 15, 20 years from now, this was an in-breath from yeah, your perspective. Yeah, look, when, when he goes and does the Seeger sessions, he can be thinking differently. When he's playing stadiums, having not played in several years, there's going to be a, a large part of that audience that has never seen Bruce Springsteen. And I personally think they're the most important ones there. I agree. And it's probably going to be the child of somebody who's like a missionary. And I don't want that new fan to not see Thunder Road. <laughs> so I just, once you're at the stadium level, the equation becomes slightly different. We are not at the bottom line anymore. Yeah. And so you've got to, what makes a great performer? It's somebody who has the highest level of sensitivity and awareness to an audience. And yeah. I think I'm behind him on this one because there, there are some songs I really want to hear when I, I'm going to go book a flight probably today. And I haven't even picked where it's going to be, but when I get there, I'm going to, there are things I'm going to want to hear. I, I had a fan say that as much as she loves Born to Run, she's heard it too much live. And I said, okay, but picture that person who's never seen Bruce live. And there is a saying in the comic book industry, every comic is someone's first comic. And so when you write that story, you need to make sure that it is inclusive enough that mm -hmm. person who's picking up their first comic is not lost. Every concert is someone's first concert. This is the first time they've heard Bruce. And mm -hmm. there are songs you want to hear. And my wonderful guest said, you're right. And from now on, I am going to, when Born to Run comes on, I am going to rejoice for all those people in that arena that have yeah. never got to hear it live before. That's going yeah. to be my moment of joy. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. And then that thinking brings you into the collective experience. Yes. And that collective experience is so powerful with 
the greatest performers. There's something yeah. about when you're looking at a great performer up there and then you look to the person at your side and they look at you and you both go, fuck. Yes. Like that, that's a yes. beautiful thing. Yeah. yeah. All right. The book, Delivery Me From Nowhere, The Making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. We did not get into it as much, but I love where our conversation went. Uh, before I Me let too. you go, though, I end every podcast with the Mary question. Jay Armstrong was an honors English teacher in the Philadelphia area, and he is now retired. But when he was teaching, he would take the song Thunder Road, print out the lyric, and give it to all his high school seniors in the honors English class. And they would treat it like a poem. They would go through line by line. They would talk about the word choices and the imagery Bruce picked and chose. And then at the end of the day, he would ask his class, does Mary get in the car? So Warren, that is your question. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? Absolutely not, because the, that situation isn't even out there in the physical world. It's all in the interior of that person. It's a song about longing. It's a song about loss. And when I heard it and I connected with it, it wasn't because I had an opportunity to get Martha Lukitis to sit in a car with me. It's because I had hundreds of adventures with her that she never even knew about. So it's about the internal to me. But look, it's a song. Maybe if we had Bruce here, it'd say, in the fucking car. Yeah, I don't think, but like, but I, if it wasn't an, a medium to, to be interpreted, we wouldn't love it as much. But for me, that's my interpretation is this is all happening internally. And I connected with how much I wanted something that because of my insecurity, because of my fear of what might not happen, it, it was only going to happen inside of me. I love that answer. That is a great answer. All right. If someone wants to reach you, what's the best way? Go to my website, which my 20-year-old son just created. It's already outdated, but there's a, con there's a contact there, and I'll, uh, and I'll respond. What's next for you? What's next? I'm going to get that plane ticket, and I'm going to go see Bruce Springsteen in Europe, and... I'm doing some helping Garth Brooks with a series of books and getting the fifth one of those done. And I'm on to my next project already, which ha hasn't been announced, but I'm feeling lucky to be engaged with some remarkable artists who are bringing me into projects that I come out the other side different in a good way. That's great. And, you know, I just want more of that action. When you're ready to promote it, let me know. And hey, if you just feel like it, reach out to me and we'll have you back on and you can do a, a concert review for me. And you yeah, can just deal. take your you can take your journalist hat on and just put your fan hat on and go, Jesse, yeah. let me tell you about it. Yeah, I'd do that. That's great. Yeah. Warren, this was a joy. Once again, I stress I loved this book so much. I know this is a book I'm going to go to. There's a film, Grace of My Heart, 
that came out multiple years ago that was a fictional version of Carol King's life and other musicians. And they had a collection of CDs that original artists did songs for the movie. Every time I listen to the CD, I want to watch the movie. Every time I watch the movie, I want to listen to the CD. I think this is every time I listen to Nebraska, I will want to reread the book. And every time I reread the book, I think I will want to listen to Nebraska. And I don't think you can have a better success. That describes the reason to write books is if the book brings you back to the music, it's a win. Yeah. So thank you, kind sir. I appreciate it. Listeners, go check out the thank book, you. check out the website, go, let's be kind to each other. Let's be safe. And we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. There we go. Another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, so if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at SetLustingBruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, perfectly good podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast with my brother in time, Charles Gags. And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listing Bruce. The theme for Set Listing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 